0: the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio
1: New South Wales.
2: Hello again, welcome to the show. Coming up, the New South Wales Government has created a new $250 million drought ready and resilience fund to help farmers with buying fodder and other costs in setting up to deal with drought. And there's also been some impressive rainfall figures phoned in to the ABC New England this morning, but perhaps more. Takes the cake.
3: Quite a few hundreds, 180 at Terra Water, and then right across uh, you know, Boomai, Gundy, and down through, there was a lot of 40s, and 50s, and 60s, sort of all through there. Once you got out to Rowena, while we get out, out that way, it was sort of 10s, 15s, 20s, so probably not really what they wanted, but hopefully with the rest of this week, we'll get some more, and they have got a week of rain forecast.
2: We 'd like to hear from you about uh, the rain or uh, maybe you missed out. you could let us know send us a text zero four six seven nine double two six eight four, but uh, some pretty big totals in that we 'll be hearing. Uh, what that will mean shortly for that region with some summer crop going in, no doubt. 0467 684 is a number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, let's uh, hear about this fund. The New South Wales government has created a new $250 million drought ready and resilience fund. It will allow primary producers to apply for low interest loans of up to $250,000. Importantly, for the first time, the fund will allow farmers to access loans for other core activities Activities like the purchasing of fodder and transport of livestock to protect their welfare, not just capital investments, and also can be used for essential items such as feeding equipment, vets, professional nutrition and welfare advice, fencing for rotational grazing, exclusion fencing, and a whole range of other things as well. Stock, shade, structures, planting of trees, and stock and domestic water as well. The Minister, Tara Moriarty, says it's new money to help farmers deal with or get ready... For drought?
4: So today, the New South Wales Government is announcing a new fund, the Drought Ready and Resilient Fund. It's got $250 million in it uh, and it will be available for eligible primary producers and farmers to apply for low interest loans of up to $250,000 to cover operational uh, issues to get them through. Uh, the upcoming dry uh, drought season that we will be going through. Um, We've made the decision as the government to do this now because we want to get in early. We want to make sure that farmers and primary producers have the opportunity to get financial support uh, through the government to be able to properly prepare uh, to get their uh, animal uh, issues sorted, to have support to get through uh, and to prepare for the dry that's coming.
2: So it's not new money because you've taken it from the Farm Innovation Fund. uh, This is new. This is
4: new.
2: This is new money, okay. Yes,
4: yes. So it's
2: totally separate to that. Well, what's happened to the Farm Innovation Money Fund? Is that still there?
4: it is so there's two parts to this so today is new money it's the drought ready and resilient fund which is new money of 250 million dollars to uh for eligible producers uh, for practical support that they may need we also have uh the drought infrastructure fund which is our refocused version of the uh pre-existing farm innovation fund um the money is available for producers now that's around 120 million dollars in there that's available for people to apply under the previous conditions, and that's for infrastructure. Uh, but we've repurposed it to make sure that it's clear that it's about preparing for drought. So $250 million plus $120 million, uh, the New South Wales government is very committed to making sure that farmers have the support they need uh, to prepare for the drought.
2: So why is it low-interest loans and not grants?
4: Uh, Because this is about supporting people to get through uh, the dry period that we are experiencing now and that will become more intense over the summer period. Uh, And then once they do, they'll be back on their feet uh, faster than they have been under previous droughts. Uh, We've learnt a lot of lessons from the drought that we experienced a couple of years ago. uh, And the most important lesson is the one we're implementing now, which is to get support on the ground early. Uh, which is what this fund will do.
2: So grants, not grants, because it, was it a reason that uh, there have been some uh, quite a few instances of fraud in the past for uh, grants that have been given out?
4: Uh, no, this is just a, a, a way of uh, working with farmers. It's so the government will support people through this period, uh, and then once we're in better. Uh, conditions once we're through the drought period and they are able to get back on their feet uh, they'll be able to to do that.
2: So uh, now who's going to run the is the Rural Assistance Authority going to actually hand out loans? How's it going to work?
4: This will be through the Rural Assistance Authority uh, in the same way that uh, funds of this nature usually work so people will be able to apply through the Rural Assistance authorities processes, uh, as they ha- traditionally uh, have been. But we've made sure in this new funding to widen the scope for people to be eligible uh, for a much wider range of support, including for the purchase of fodder, for feeding equipment, for stock transportation costs, uh, for vet and professional nutrition advice for fencing uh, for rotational grazing uh, and things of that nature uh, that they weren't able to apply for under the previous uh, the previous uh, amount of money uh, this is about making sure that people can get through this period uh, with the support of the government uh, until we get to uh, the post-drought
2: period. Have you relaxed the sort of uh, lending criteria? Because obviously if it's in a drought and they don't have any income, it's going to be hard for them to you know, show that they could pay the the, the loans back. Is it a bit more relaxed?
4: It is. It's designed to help people through this period. So uh, again, the Drought Infrastructure Fund is still in place, the old Farm Innovation Fund for infrastructure projects, and the criteria for that still apply. $120 million for infrastructure is, is still there, but we're making sure that people understand that's focused on drought infrastructure. Uh, but the Drought Ready and Resilient Fund, this new $250 million fund, is about getting, through, getting people through uh, the short term and getting people assistance. We want this money to get out the door to people who need it straight away so that people can be prepared uh, for what's to come. Uh, the DPI drought indicator is showing that 75% of New South Wales is affected by drought in some way already. Uh, this is moving quickly, and again, we've learnt the lessons uh, that the previous government didn't uh, from the last last drought, and we're very committed to getting in early.
2: The other thing is uh, mentioned about uh, who holds the loan. Is it going to be a government-held loan, or do you have to go, do it through your bankers? Bank, uh, quite often, banks don't like it when other, you know, there's um, other entities that hold security over a farm.
4: Well, this will be through the Rural Assistance Authority, in the same way that other support uh, in periods like this is provided. Uh, We want to work with farmers and producers to get through. Uh, I know they're currently, uh, many of them have reached out to me because they're currently dealing with their banks and this will be the usual process for support Uh, of this nature Uh, but it is designed to help people to get through the government is working directly with uh, eligible primary producers and farmers to prepare uh, for this period
2: it sounds like you'll have quite a lot of people applying have you got enough staff on the ground there to help people out i understand in the past that that has been an issue not enough staff to go through all the application forms
4: Well, we'll, if there are any issues in that regard, we'll continue to work with the Rural Assistance Authority uh, and the department to make sure that we can get money out the door uh, as people are approved and and as it's needed. The whole point of this is to get uh, support from the government to our farmers, to our primary producers uh, in a timely way so that they can get prepared uh, and get through this period. So whatever we need to do to make that happen, uh, I'll make sure that that works.
2: And how low would the interest rate be? Because, uh, you know, we're we talking like, uh, you know, a heavy discount site like 2% or with a three in front. What's, what are we looking at?
4: Uh, it'll be Treasury bond rates. So it is lower than the banks because, again, this is about just uh, helping our primary producers and farmers to get through this period uh, with uh, working with the government, with government support. So uh, it's not commercial rates, it's not bank rates, this will be Treasury bond rates.
2: And uh, for fodder as well. That, that's unusual. I, I, I don't think that fodder, you could you were always able to borrow money to buy fodder before.
4: Yeah, it is unusual, but we wanted to make sure that this is practical, common-sense support for what people are telling me that they need and don't cause long-term issues for uh, for our farmers and for the broader community. So, yep, we've widened the scope for this. Yep, it includes fodder, it includes uh, shade structures, planting of trees, fencing, uh, exclusion and cluster fencing, um, vet and professional uh, help so that we can get in front of any animal welfare
2: issues. That's Minister for Agriculture Tara Moriarty. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to 14 minutes past 12. When well, New South Wales farmers have welcomed the new Drought Ready and Resilience Fund that will provide low interest fixed term loans of up to $250,000. Uh, to establish critical infrastructure and also allowing uh, cash flow management for on-farm drought tasks, uh, particularly for livestock producers. It says uh, that it's the first time farmers will be able to access the loans for a range of things like purchasing fodder and stock transportation costs. Here's New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin.
3: Look at a collapse in red meat pricing. It's uh, It's really devastating for producers. So trying to think through how that good animal welfare, as their highest priority, is funded is an important uh, element and it appears that all aspects of caring for the animals there can be covered by this uh, this new announcement. The pivot from you know, in drought-type grants and reactive subsidies to
5: one of preparedness is a key change and it recognises that farmers are preparing for the sort of variable climate impact
2: New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin's also pleased to see an invigorated uh, focus on the Farm Innovation Fund with the $120 million balance being reallocated as a drought infrastructure fund. This, he says, will aid the grain sector to increase uh, on-farm storage, also potentially support the horticulture sector to expand their critical water infrastructure and storage needs. On the Country Hour, 16 past 12, but uh, Warren Salway runs sheep and cattle near Cabargo, which is currently going through an intense drought. That's according to the uh, DPI drought indicator. He says he'd be reluctant to apply for low-interest loans when you factor in the downturn in livestock prices? Not
6: really, Josh, because you've got that big problem of you take the loan out, then you've got to repay it, and at the current cattle prices and sheep prices, how are you going to service that loan? Like, uh, you know, when you're getting three to $400 for your calves and your commodity prices have all gone through the roof, and we're going backwards. Why the hell would you take on more debt that you can't service?
2: Warren Selway, who runs Sheep and Cattle near Cabargo, it's 17 past 12.
7: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music
8: and more.
9: You're listening to The Country Hour.
8: On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
9: Well,
2: we've been talking about drought and rain deficits in many areas, but some good news is that uh, on that, though. There's been some impressive rain figures phoned into the ABC New England this morning. Perhaps, though, Moree takes the cake. Up to 130mm recorded west of Moree and 20mm recorded in other parts of the region. So what does this uh, do? What does this mean for those people that are on the land? Well, Peter Birch is a Moree agronomist, and he's speaking here to Christy Reading.
3: The line sort of ran from... St George was inside the line. Mungadai was just on the line. It went down into the watercourse and then back sort of close to Moree and, and south. Uh, there were some big falls inside that line, quite a few hundreds, 180 at Water, uh, so, And then right across uh, yeah, Bumai, Dundee and down through, uh, there was a lot of 40s and 50s and 60s, sort of all through there. And then it sort of... Once you got out to Rowena, we'll get out out that way. It was sort of 10, 15, 20. So probably not really what they wanted. But hopefully, with the rest of this week, we'll get some more. And then once, and it's still moving east. And it's it blue sky here at seven o'clock this morning, and it's raining again now. So they have got a week of rain forecast.
0: Mm, wow, <laughs> 180. That's the highest you've heard.
3: Yep. Yep, it's uh, water going everywhere, as you'd imagine.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what, in a, in a 12-hour period, or, or when did it start to fall?
3: Oh, I think it started to rain out there. Oh, probably, but no, it probably started to rain out there about lunchtime yesterday. Okay. And, but, yeah, but uh, anyway, yeah, fantastic. So what that means for everyone around here, well, first of all, not many people got much sleep last night in between the cricket and, and listening to the rain <laughs> on the roof. <laughs> so, <laughs> there was a bit of excitement around last night. Uh Anyone in, inside that line is obviously going to have enough moisture to go and do something. Uh, there'll certainly be some sorghum go in. There'll be quite a bit of forage sorghum go in, and there'll be some cotton go in. So, on the back of that, but as much as anything, it's just uh, it just it's, it's, this is the first general rain we've had since you know end of October last year. So, I think it just reaffirms to people that it can do it, and that uh, you know those, you know, forty, fifty, sixty, eighty, hundred mils all do wonders for the for the winter crop profiles for next year as well. So it just you know, it'll, it'll really get get everyone who got under those those rains uh, a, a big uh, lift in their step. Uh, we're expecting uh, rain all this week, so it'll be interesting to know. Hopefully, it'll fill in those areas that didn't get uh, didn't get wet before.
0: Mm. So, I mean, you touched on it there, Peter. But how will this change what people do in your area when it comes to planting, when it comes to, to cotton? I mean, how significant is this?
3: Uh, well, it's very significant. A lot of because the forecast was so strong, uh, there was an, an awful lot of cotton. Guy planted last week. You know, when, once the forecast really got up there on on Wednesday and stayed stayed up there for sort of five days of rain, there was a, a an absolute rush of planting cotton last week. Uh, up up until Sunday, and there was a, yeah. So there was um, I hope to think five five to ten thousand hectares probably got planted in that mm-hmm. in that five days there around the place you know, of dryland cotton, and then there'll be a lot more dryland cotton going on the back of this. Mm. I think the irrigators they had plenty of water and they, they're probably all where they, where they are, but it'll, it'll run water on the irrigation farms and they'll be able to, uh, you know, that'll slow the, the take out of Copeton down because there was a fair bit of water motoring out of Copeton over the last three weeks. So that'll slow all that down, hopefully, and, and put some more water back in non farm dams. So uh, mm. the sorghum, a lot of people hadn't taken the taken the punt on the sorghum it's sort of only just getting into the right period to, to plant sorghum so you know by the time this dries out in five seven eight ten days time depending on when the rain finally finishes it'll be sort of much better timing to plant sorghum to keep the flowering away from the heat so uh, we're expecting quite a big you know, sorghum plant and even if people only plant one paddock of cotton, or one paddock of sorghum, or one paddock of forage, it's still going to be a huge plant across the area.
0: Yeah, and, and those for those that aren't irrigators, Peter. I mean, what will this have done for you know dams on farm water storage? What was the situation prior to these falls?
3: Uh, a lot of the area that got rain, one, or once you get up certainly once you get up in southern Queensland, there were a lot of graziers with with stock dams. A, a lot of the uh, areas this this went across probably didn't have that many stock and didn't have that many stock dams and a lot of bore drains. There was sort of twenties and thirties and forties up sort of going east to Warrialda towards Inverell. so it's probably given how dry it was, that'll probably only just start the water into stock dams. But if it keeps going this week it certainly it'll certainly start to put some water into stock dams, which would be fantastic. Mm. And and just to revive the pastures A few little falls that we've had have just put a green tinge around the place but it's a green drought and uh, if you get 30, 40, 50 mils on top of that, it'll it'll really explode with the warm temperatures and everything and, and you know, there'll be some good food around. So it'll make a big difference to the yeah, to the cattle uh, the cattle job as well. Mm.
0: Peter, it's been great to talk to you this morning. and I know you touched on it, but uh, if we know that Moree in that area has missed out on a lot of the, the storm activity and the rainfall we've had across the region in the last few weeks. So really nice to be able to talk about some good news today. Uh, what's your plan today, Peter, out into it?
3: Uh, it's way too wet to get out into it. But we're, we'll be stuck on the end of two phones, I reckon.
2: <laughs> Peter birch Mori, agronomist there. He's uh, hitting the phones today. 30 millimetres at uh, Gilgandra as well and also at uh, Coonabarabin we're hearing. so, And some more rain forecast. We'll talk to the Bureau in about uh, seven or eight minutes' time. It's uh, 23 minutes past 12.
7: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
2: Iconic Australian hat maker Akubra announced yesterday that the business has been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Akubra has been run by the Keir family for the for the last one hundred and forty seven years, as Tina Quinn reports.
7: It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and Prime Ministers. And the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that
5: way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for. The fact, these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in an Akubra is the way to do it.
7: Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired Akubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876, and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years, since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region, with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair, Stephen Kier, said the decision to sell was a difficult one cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers.
10: Um, The first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough. Uh, Then it took off and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point and we can't get it further. And um, that's where we made the decision to look at where we can go, how we do it. And the world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia. So Tatarang will take that further and do that. My sisters and I have talked for a long time about um, where we can get this business to, and we've we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now, and our forefathers have done a good job to where it is. But it needs more, and um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs. And um, Tattering and the forests have proven um, what they've done with Aaron Williams. Um, we've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time, and um, it's just. The brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought what does the brand need and what does the company need and um, this is a decision we came to and um, Mr. Forrest has talked to me over the years. Andrew Digger. Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years and um, he, his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs.
7: Terence Hunt, a former Acubra employee of 53 years, told the ABC's Samantha Ayesha that he has many fond memories from his time at the company.
11: I started in 1961. I retired as the company secretary in 1995 and retired as a director in 2014.
1: So what would you say would be the most rewarding time since your time at Okubra? There
11: have been a couple of really good times. 1998 with the... Uh, uh, Centenary and the uh, Commonwealth Games in Britain—a dramatic increase in demand—and we rose to the challenge. Dropped off then since, but since then it's picked up. And with the last one I was involved we were selling into 23 countries. Bit, bit, bit large for a small Australian company. So,
1: how do you feel with the new ownership?
11: Well, I say to somebody else: Charles Darwin never said the survival of the fittest. He said, the survival of those who adapt fastest. And this generation has adapted to the situation they're in now. There's certainly Mr. Forrest coming in with his assets that he got available to back the company to do more and bigger things, have to applaud that. It's good thinking, it's advancing in Cuba, it's advancing in Australia.
1: And what legacy do you hope that the company carries
11: on? looking after the employees, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers. And it's always been a family company, and that's been a very strong point.
7: Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Okubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The forests announced they had separated this year but continue to invest together through Tatarang.
2: Tina Quinn with that report and you can read more about the Akubra sale at abc.net.au. It's 28 minutes past 12.
7: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more
2: the north coast's 14 million dollar tiger prawn aquaculture industry is at a standstill as farmers there struggle to restart after the white spot disease outbreak the virus first detected on a prawn farm in august 2022 and then again in february this year all three prawn farms on palmer's island near yamba are for sale true blue yamba prawns australia's first commercial prawn farm started operating 40 years ago Operations Manager Corey Roberts says it would cost more than a million dollars to get going again, as just too great a financial risk if white spot returns.
12: We were very shocked to learn that the, um, testing, our own testing, had picked up white spot in the broodstock. It, it was quite devastating. We saw it always knew that white spot might rear its head here one day, but we weren't prepared for it. We thought maybe another five or six years at least.
8: Your testing revealed exactly what and, and, and pinning the source of where this white spot was found?
12: Um, routine testing that all the prawns are tested and sent off to the la- laboratory, picked up that they had white spot and there was high levels of white spot detected in the Yamba broodstock.
8: Where were those broodstock sourced from specifically?
12: So we'd been catching good broodstock um, off Iluka like the rest of the industry, we use broodstock brood sourced from the Northern Territory and the east coast off Cairns. How
8: do you know that the white spot wasn't from the broodstock from the Northern Territory?
12: Uh, well, no other farms who use the same prawns um, detected white spot in any of their their broodstock. So that's sort of like the smoking gun to us that the evidence all points to the broodstock being caught off Walikaa as the source.
8: How do you feel about this?
12: Oh, it's. It's devastating what it's done to the fam- family and the farm. Um, our employees, our employees were like family to us. Yeah, it's devastating to have to put everyone off. And the Commonwealth Government brought in a white spot levy and that's what kept the Queensland farmers afloat. And since the 2016 outbreak, um, every farm in Australia has paid into that levy to repay for the compensation that kept the industry alive there. Yet, when we have white spot here, re- the Government says we're entitled to nothing. So it's a kick in the guts.
8: The DPI says there's nothing stopping you guys really getting back into operation because it's all been decontaminated. Technically, there's no white spot here. So, you know, what, what do you say to that?
12: Well, it's, it's far too late in the season to begin stocking the ponds. You need months in advance of planning, sourcing broodstock, staff. It's, it's impossible. You can't just walk into a shop and buy broodstock and larvae go and you know, stock your ponds.
8: And effectively by them just recently giving you the all clear to be able to do it is, is just way too late in the, in the farming cycle.
12: Exactly, yes. It's, it's, um, the prawns need to be stocked by the end of October, otherwise they won't reach size in time for harvest and you, you, your stock won't be marketable. Um, and until the DPI gives some directions on how they will deal with another outbreak um, and who will pay for the cleanup, it's just a risk too great to take. Oh, to kick off the farm again, we'd need 1.5 million. So, yeah, that's a lot of money to put on the line, it's only for the DPI to be able to come in and say, we're going to um, get rid of your stock at the first line of White Spot.
8: Is it time to learn to live with White Spot?
12: Um, I don't think so. I think we still need to be strong on the border. They've just got to stop the imports of green prawns. Everything's got to be cooked. It's too easy for prawns to, uh, to be bought from the supermarkets cheaply and used as bait for fishing and that's what's proven to, to have happened.
8: What makes you think that we didn't learn anything from the Queensland experience, given what's happened to you guys?
12: The, the decision to chlorinate. It's just the biggest waste of public money. Um, that was the biggest lesson learned from the Queensland outbreak, was that the chlorination was a waste of time. We'd already treated the ponds and killed all the um, prawns available, yet the, the decision made by the DPI was to go and chlorinate again, which was effectively just throwing millions and millions of dollars in public money down the drain. Yet they're happy to treat the cause but not fix the symptom.
2: Operations manager at True Blue Yamba Yamba Prawns, Corey Roberts. Now the New South Wales DPI has offered up to five hundred thousand dollars to each of the three prawn farms to improve biosecurity measures. In a statement, a spokesman from the Federal Department of Agriculture said there were no formal arrangements in place to share the costs and responsibility for aquatic emergency. Uh, uh, animal disease response and New South Wales are responsible for managing this detectin- detection and dealing with the costs. It's 27 minutes to one, and uh, shortly we'll have some weather details. But before we do that, some people have texted in about the rain. Uh, David Trundle says, Still waiting for that predicted 5 to 15 millimetres of rain at his place, just a few spots this morning, not even enough to record it in the rain gauge. Uh, on the um, uh, issue of uh, the uh, assistance the drought fund assistance, um, Margie at Waggers texted in saying she received a water emergency infrastructure fifty fifty grant from the RAA after the la- last drought that allowed her to put in some dams or clean out uh, the dams she already had put in a big one hundred and ten thousand liter tank she's destocked at low prices, but she still has some heifers. she says the point is she feels so much more at ease. With her much better water infrastructure, and uh, she says a lot of that due to the funding assistance she got at the time. Other people were texting and saying, "I feel a bit anxious about a loan proposal," and uh, another person saying, "By the time I, I pay, you pay the loan back, there'll be another drought." And uh, but also uh, saying, uh, "Thumbs down to those people that defrauded the system last time." And uh, uh, that's why uh, you know they're loath to uh, hand out grants this time. And it's still on the rainfall, Angus has texted in saying 42mm uh, between Gaduga and Brewarrina. But he also heard reports of up to 65mm uh, in some areas and over 100mm around Lightning Ridge. So uh, hopefully that's done something to uh, quell the fire, the Hudson fire as well. It's uh, time to find out what's happening in the news, and we'll probably talk about cricket in a moment. But uh, first of all, it's uh, Adam's story oh, what's of the in news. The oh, <laughs> Australia <laughs> just won just for a change. change. <laughs> we lost. Was it? We lost four in a row. Was it four in a row to yeah. start off the tournament?
9: Yeah, something like that. Mm. Yeah. But we they came, came back in the end. That's we right. That's right. <laughs> nah, well, always, quite often, look, a- actually, just, quite huge. Quite
2: due to Travis' head, which I said, I said that on Friday, didn't yes. I? I said if if he gets started, look, look out. But he was um, a magnificent in the field as well.
9: Him and Manus Larbshane, mm. one hundred and ninety-two. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. And yeah. that uh, basically saved the day. Yeah, because uh, it was uh, looked a bit shaky earlier mm. on.
2: The mini collapse. Yeah, three for not much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
9: But, yeah, a great tournament, I mm. thought, overall as well. Mm. Mm. And especially that we won the damn. And thing.
2: quite a few surprises as well. The Absolutely. Netherlands having yeah. their pre- pretty mm. good matches against some of the higher higher teams. Of course,
9: we all shed a tear for England. <laughs> uh, yes. <yeah. laughs> That's right. Maybe next time, boys. <laughs> uh, the Chief Executive of Altus has resigned. Yes, um, I saw that. This was uh, less than two weeks after the uh, network collapse, but it also follows the... Uh, senate appearance uh senate inquiry uh, senate committee appearance by uh, kelly bayer rosmarin uh, last week which probably uh didn't do their pr uh, any good uh so they have uh, their current uh, chief financial officer michael venter has been installed as the interim ceo with the uh Singaporean uh, parent company, Singtel, uh, now on the hunt for a new boss. Even though it was Singtel, who actually caused them.
6: <laughs> <laughs> That's, <laughs> true true. The- That's true. Kicked an
9: own goal in the first place. Mm. Uh, in Melbourne, uh, the second day of searching is underway for two people missing after two former military planes uh, collided. Um, the- one of the planes plunged into the water. The other jet managed to land at Essendon Airfield. Uh, now it's believed the crews were filming promotional uh, material uh, before the collision. Some wreckage has been found, uh, but they're uh, continuing uh, searches uh, for remaining debris. And Port Phillip course, Bay, uh, as well. Yeah, all those people watching yeah, too. Yeah, that's a very public, uh, very public area. Uh, overseas, another 31 Australians and their family members have left Gaza after crossing the Rafa border into Egypt overnight. The Department of Foreign Affairs says the group is made up of citizens, permanent residents and family members. Meanwhile, the White House says a hostage deal uh, between Israel and Hamas is closer than ever. Uh, it's been holding around 200, uh, more than 200 people captive since the attack on uh, Israel last month uh the deputy national security advisor has told the american abc news network that uh, significant progress has been made over the past few days and even hours uh but it is not a done deal yet and uh the uh former first lady rosalind carter has died at the age of 96 and uh jimmy jimmy's still going still going (laughs) uh they were married for 77 years uh and she was described as not only the First Lady, but as uh, co-president by some of those who looked at the White House. Mm. So she had a bit to say. I think so, mm. yeah. <laughs> but he's still going, he's well, in a ho- Jimmy was he's- such a quiet bloke.
2: <laughs> but he's in, he's in a hospice now, but he's I think still still so, yeah. 99 yeah. or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Incredible. Yeah. Crazy. Amazing, yeah. Amazing. yeah. Yes. All right. Well, uh, we'll be uh, listening at one o'clock for the the
9: latest. Get me down there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with that. It's uh, coming up to 22 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details you unpack at the
13: Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we can
2: expect some more rain this week, but maybe not as much as we've seen so far, maybe just a bit less.
13: That's right, yes. It looks like we have seen the peak of rainfall activities across the north. Uh, Well, but yesterday we have seen fairly widespread uh, and decent, uh, moderate uh, rainfall uh, across uh, many parts of the uh, northern slopes and the northern tables and uh, across the northern inland. And highest being uh, Guduga, which uh, reported 105 millimeters uh, in the last uh, 24 hours till 9 a.m. this morning and there's some other locations uh, uh, well one of the rain gauges uh, uh, around that area also reported uh, 83 millimeters but other parts like uh, Mori for example had uh, you know close to 50 millimeters and uh, what we are seeing is uh, well uh, on the other hand the rain bearing system has weakened uh, somewhat and he's to south, and may, we may still see thunderstorms as well. Um, but and generally um, widespread, moderate totals with you know possible additional 10 to 20 millimeters in many parts. And with the development of uh, uh, severe thunderstorms this afternoon, uh, some locations may uh, still have a uh, risk of seeing uh, locally heavy falls and the flash flooding. But over the coming days. Uh, We expect similar weather patterns to continue uh, because uh, uh, of a slow moving inland trough. uh combined with a cradling high pressure reach to the south and uh, this weather pattern is not changing while uh, enabling accumulation of uh, inc- uh, moisture across uh, across the state, especially um, across the northern parts near Queensland border. And with that, we expect a continuation of showers and thund- thunderstorms in many parts across the week uh, with the risk of um, th- severe thunderstorms. Um, uh, coming daily here and there, maybe hit and miss, but uh, possibly posing a risk of localized heavy falls and uh, uh, flash flooding um, throughout the week.
2: Okay, so we're we talking about the whole state. I mean, down to the Riverina as well, the Central West, not just in the north. M- m- expecting that sort of five to twenty millimeters, uh, possibly, and maybe more if some if there are some storms.
13: Ah uh, well. Perhaps many parts uh, across the eastern half and the northern inland uh, will see maybe daily totals of 5 to 20 millimeters, um, um, but it uh, pa- looks like the rainfall totals in the southwestern quarter and uh, some pa- uh, western half of uh, Riverina seems to be a bit less, uh, so a bit chancey down there, but other parts, as I said, will see you know, uh, daily totals, you know, anywhere about 5 to 10 or possibly 20 and with storms, this figure could be a lot more, uh, as I said. Um, And it looks like, um, but towards the end of the week, we may see the whole uh, focus of the rainfall area shifting to the western part. And with that, uh, Riverina may see a better chance of seeing decent rainfall, perhaps after Friday. And as the rainfall patterns shift to the west during the latter part of the week and then make eastward, east to south-eastward again with the, uh, as the trough becomes mobile um, and heading towards the south-eastern corner during the weekend.
2: Okay, so there's a possibility it could sort of come back and, uh, and fill in some of those areas that may be missed out.
13: That's right. Yes. So you know, for first half of the week, it will be focused about the eastern half and the northern inland, and then during the latter part, western uh, western bit, and toward the weekend, it will be the southeastern bit. Yes, all over the place.
2: Okay. All right. So a chance of rain just about everywhere by the sound of things, and uh, some storms on top of that uh, might boost those totals a bit. If uh, you thanks for that.
13: Yeah, my pleasure.
2: It's 18 minutes to one and uh, getting a few more reports about the uh, amount of rain. 22 millimetres in North Tamworth, says Sam. Seven millimetres uh, east of Canambool. A bit disappointing. Hopefully it'll fill in. 30 uh, millimetres at Ningan. Uh, got under a storm. Looks like there's more to come, uh, says Greg. Also, um, 10 hours of Spready of steady sprinkling of rain. It's uh, it's uh, resulted in 13 millimetres of precipitation in the gauge downstream of Gunadar Says Allen and um, yeah, so there's a range of uh, range of totals uh, up to that uh, that total we the the uh, highest total we heard about, which is 130 millimetres. It's 17 to one.
7: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. You're listening to The Country Hour
14: on ABC Radio, New South Wales.
2: The European Commission last week renewed the approved use of weed killer glyphosate for 10 years, but the Commission included some new conditions, including the setting of maximum application rates the EU is a major export market for Australian producers and Andrew Whitelaw from the market analysis company Episode 3 says the extension is good news for Australian producers that use glyphosate.
15: Look, I don't think it's a major surprise that they continued the approval of it. I think it's a chemical that hasn't yet got any sort of replacements available yet. So I think they are going to keep it. Uh, I do think it's sort of interesting because they do have other policies on the way which will reduce the uh, uh, the amount of pesticides fertilizers used in europe and increase the amount of organic farming which sort of flies in the face of this because well they are going to be using less which means they'll produce less and if you look at australia as a country we import about 14 to 15 percent of our agricultural chemicals from europe the majority of them come from china which we know in the past has been a problem in terms of supply chains if Europe stops producing as much because they're not using as much locally, it will mean that we'll be far more reliant on China again on another agricultural product, which we've had issues with in the past with DAP, MAP and other sort of uh, fertilisers. So that's one potential change, I guess, for the Australian market. That's a potential change, and, that, and we're talking sort of 2030 onwards, but it's not that long really till, till 2030 at this point.
16: That's true. Uh, any other impacts to the market do you think this will have?
15: No, I think it's just, look, it's probably one of the the good things is that it means that it's a product that's approved in Europe. So that means that we shouldn't face any issues using glyphosate on our uh, products. We won't get any of that green diplomacy where we're told uh, we can't use glyphosate on our products because it's still a product that is used within Europe. The problem we would have had is if Europe banned it for their farmers and we were still allowed to use it, there's potential we could face tariffs get most like for our canola, which is our biggest agricultural product into Europe.
16: Yeah. I guess, what do you think the long-term future for glyphosate is then?
15: Look, I think it doesn't necessarily matter about the science of it. I think that's the issue we have, is that over time, we... We may see some of these products coming up the marketplace, but I think that they can only come up the marketplace if there's replacements. You can't just go decide to go all organic or whatnot. You've actually got to have something to replace it because we still need to produce enough food, and glyphosate is one of the tools in the tool chest that we have.
2: Andrew Whitelaw speaking with Andy Brown, but some producers say they're keen to move away from synthetic pesticides. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer and butcher and president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She says the EU decision is a backward step.
17: We were at the Biodiversity COP in Montreal in December, where the global biodiversity framework was agreed upon by all of the nations of the world. And Target 7 actually calls for a reduction by half of the risk from pesticides to um, environment and human health. And so this, to me, seems to be counter to that, given that those countries were in those meetings and agreed to that target. So it seems pretty retrograde to be extending one of the most ubiquitous chemicals in the system instead of trying to dial it back. Coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. I do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmers toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate. So we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly, given the biodiversity loss and climate change from the production of of, um, agrochemicals as well.
8: Given that the decision has been made now by the EU, what kind of knock-on effects do you expect that to have in Australia?
17: Some farmers were relieved that it means that they maintain markets in the EU to, to ship glyphosate-treated produce to. I did see there were some prohibitions included in the extra 10 years, including not being able to use it for a late harvest desiccant. So I know that's how it's used sometimes in Australia, and that might change some of our practices towards more environmentally sound practices as well. It just might be a slower transition
2: than some of us had hoped. Tammy John is speaking to Elsie Kennedy.
17: Hello,
4: I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Over and out, Optus CEO Kelly bayer Osmarin quits after the telco's outage that caused countrywide chaos. New video of what Israel says is a Hamas tunnel complex under Gaza's biggest hospital, but also hoped the release of Israeli hostages could be close. And Australia steals the Cricket World Cup from India, the shock win being described by some as one of our greatest ever victories.
2: That's on the world today, but on the country, our global meat processing giant JBS is confirmed that it's uh, going to increase shifts in its Australian abattoirs. In a webcast from Brazil, the CEO of G- JBS, Gilberto Tomazzoni, had this to say.
5: We are now working one shift. We are planning for the next year to be working two
13: shifts because the availability of carols, the market is demanding. We are very bullish in terms of our study operations export demand, and in particular from China, you called out some pressure on export
4: prices from China. So I guess I'm curious what, what your expectation is going forward as we roll
11: into 2024
4: in terms of China export demand and if um, you're expecting a recovery and what your level of confidence
13: in that is. We see that the demand from China keep growing. If you look for the per capita consumption in China, it's very low, consider other markets with the same income power. That means that red meat, Is an aspiration in China, and it keeps growing.
2: Gilberto Tomazzoni, who's CEO of JBS. Now, JBS is the country's largest meat and processing food company, employing over 10,000 people across Australia and New Zealand. Federal Secretary of the Australian Meat Workers Union, Matt Giorno, told David Claughton that it's a significant announcement.
6: Yeah, it's a pretty big move. Obviously, um, the industry's been uh, finding it difficult to attract labour for quite some time. Um, JBS is the largest beef processor in Australia, so uh, it is a fair uh, number of workers that they'll be looking for.
14: Because there's several thousand in Australia in their plants, is that right?
6: Yeah, no, that's correct. Um, I believe it's around 4,500 people they, they employ. Um, so
14: how many extra would they need?
6: Uh, yeah, well, for a night shift um, in one of their Dinmore, uh, their Dinmore plant, which is the largest... Uh, operation that they have would be probably six to seven hundred people.
14: So, across the country at, at their various sites, how many would it add up to? Do you reckon?
6: Yeah, some of their sites don't operate at the night shift, so that would probably be a question you'd have to ask JBS.
14: And where do you think the workers will come from?
6: Um, again, the, the industry's been struggling to attract workers for a long, long time. Um, you know, essentially, we've had a, a temporary school shortage in the industry for 20 years, so it hasn't been too temporary. Um, but JBS has done better than most, um, and they do try and engage their workforce through the local community. Um, Dinmore, two years ago, did go to a night shift for a brief period of time, and they managed to recruit those people from the Ipswich area. So hopefully they'll, um, there'll be a, an ability to, to get those people from the local area.
14: And how significant do you think this will be in terms of the volume of production coming out of Australia now?
6: Yeah, well, that's what um, the, the night shift at, at Dinmore failed from last time is because the regularity of supply was such that um, it really couldn't keep um, the, the cattle up to that operation at the time. So um,
14: lots of cattle moment. around now.:
11: Yeah, and pretty cheap. That's,
6: that's just at the moment with the weather the way that it is. Um, there, there are plenty of cattle around. Um, but again, the industry can't just um, kill when it's available um, and then stand its workforce down when it's not and expect those workers to be there in the future.
14: Right. But uh, I suppose uh, that happens all the time in your, in your sector, doesn't it? It's hard to know how they could do that differently. If they haven't got supply, they they probably just have to shut things down.
6: Yeah. Years ago, they used to just wind back operations, not just turn the lights off completely, um, and again, there's got to be a way of um, having a better regular supply of cattle into the, into the processing sector than what we do now. Um, and that's, you know, all sorts of things we've got to be looking at. Uh, if you've got a plainer style of animal that can be um, finished on grain, um, it can be put into um, a lot feed situation where uh, it has the effect of, of regulating that supply of, of animals into the, the processing sector as well. We stick a million head of cattle on a boat Um, and send them overseas as live export animals. Um, Those animals could be finished in Australia and processed here.
2: Matt Giorno from the Australian Meat Workers Union. First up, Bendigo sheep and lambs.
16: Good afternoon. The market got some of its mojo back today with everything dearer. The big mover was light lambs, which gained $8 to $15, pushed up by restockers who went harder against processors wanting MK kill lambs. The better bred lines of light lambs, mostly $50 to $80. The bigger framed 16 to 18 kilo types averaging $74 to the paddock and the 12 to 16 kilos, $60. The average cost on a weight basis went over four hundred dollars a kilo. Not a lot of heavy prime lambs again. The heaviest suckers, 26 to 30 kilos, 135 to a top of 177, averaging over 500 cents and some pens above 550 cents a kilo. Trade lambs also averaged dearer but were erratic in places. The 24 to 26 kilos, 123 to 145, and the 22 to 24 kilos, 102 to 136, to average $115 at a ballpark 480 cents a kilo. Shawn suckers sold particularly well, an exported bind to put on feed at ninety to one hundred and fifteen dollars. A pen of heavy Shawnee's up around twenty-eight to twenty-nine kilos carcass weight, topped at $164. Mutton was the other big improver, gaining ten to twenty dollars a head, most sheep thirty to fifty dollars today, with merinos in a skin out to sixty, the rate mostly one hundred twenty to two hundred cents a kilo carcass weight. Jenny Kelly for MLA.
1: Coro sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Agents penned less numbers this week for a total of 9,400 sheep and lambs. Another good mixed quality yarding with all weights and grades on offer. Most buyers were present and operating. Stronger competition drove the market up 5 to $6. New season lambs trade weights 88 to $125. Heavy and extra heavy export lambs $121 to $155. Sean lambs sold up to $132. Light lambs, the restocker, 45 to $60 and processors paid from $60 to $80. Hoggets made up to $80. Light mutton from $25 to $35. Crossbred ewes, $32 to $49. And merinos up to $148. This has been a remote report done by Caroline Ronald for MLA. Dubbo, sheep and lambs.
18: Numbers were up a little for a yarding of 8,500 lambs. It was a much better quality yarding with a good selection of new season lambs along with some good lots of well finished old lambs. There were also some well finished merino lambs yarded. Most of the usual buyers were operating along with the return of one of the major southern processors. Trade lambs were 18 to 23 dollars dearer, with the new season lambs selling from 67 to 126, to average between 4.50 and 5.30 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs weighing between 20 and 24 kilograms sold from 84 to 130. Heavyweight lambs were up to 15 deer, with the old lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 100 to 166 to average between 460 and 530 cents. Heavyweight new season lambs sold to 146. Merino lambs were 9 to 13 deer, with trade weights selling from 40 to 100. Lambs for the restockers were $10 dearer with new season lambs selling from 50 to 70. Hoggets were $8 deer, selling to $60. We have the balance of the lambs and 8,300 muttons still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. To Wagga cattle.
1: Good afternoon. The Wagga sale experienced a shift in dynamics due to the rain in the north, leading to notable increase in prices ranging from ten to twenty cents across various categories. restockers they took central stage with isolated sales of young heifers witnessing a significant jump of up to a dollar. Meanwhile, store steers saw a substantial lift of fifty cents reaching a top of two hundred and eighty eight cents a kilogram. The cow market it exhibited strong Competition, especially for leaner types, with prices climbing up to 30 cents higher. Heavy cows command a top price of 211 cents, jumping 20. And the market for heavy steers and bullocks remain robust, with prices ranging from 176 to 238. Despite not all domestic buyers participating this week in the trade market, trade steers and heifers did present in reasonable numbers and experienced a price surge of 20 cents, selling within the range of 180 to 250. The best bulls topped at 242, and I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. To Forbes Cattle.
19: Numbers fell this star with agents yarding 862 head. Quality was mixed with some handy runs of fed finished cattle on offer along with the secondary lines. The usual bars are present competing in a dearer market. Yearling steers to feed lifted 15 cents to sell from 200 to 263 for middle and heavyweights. The finished lines to processors were 6 to 10 cents a kilo better to sell from 177 to 230. Lightweights to restockers reached 322 cents a kilo. The heifer portion was also 10 to 15 cents better. Those to feed received from 155 to 210, with processors paying from 155 to 215. Heavy steers and bullocks were five to six cents dearer, ranging in price from 175 to 226. grown heifers sold from 166 to 181. Cows lifted five to ten cents, with heavy two-score 150 to 168. Three score 168 to 186. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And Tamworth
5: Cattle. Good afternoon. Rain reduced the penning to 850 head. Young cattle made up the biggest percentage with a fair supply of cows. Quality and condition was fair to good. All regular buyers attended. Not all orders being used, though. Not surprising. Restocker and feedlot demand was high. Trends generally dearer. However, there was some breed and quality-related change. weight restocker steers sold from 254 to 320 cents a kilo. Medium weights were firm to 16 cents dearer, 245 to 310. Heavyweight feeders were as much as 35. Dearer, 250 to 298 cents. Heavy trade, significantly dearer, reaching 304. The gains in the yearling heifers surpassed those of the steers, with lightweights 200 to 290, while the medium and heavyweights to feed sold from 216 to 258 cents. Heavy grown steers to 230 cents. Not a lot of change in the cow market. The heavy three and four scores, 187 to 212 cents a kilo. James Armitage, Framillay in Tamworth.
2: And that's the market information for today. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio. It's uh, coming up to one o'clock.